Support for Criminal comes from 1Password. If you're someone who's ever reused an old password, or you just hate creating and keeping track of new ones, then it might be time to try a password manager. 1Password generates as many strong, unique passwords as you need and securely stores them in an encrypted vault that only you have access to. All you have to do is remember one strong account password that protects everything else. Right now, our listeners get a free two-week trial for you and your family at onepassword.com criminal. That's the number one, password.com criminal for two free weeks. onepassword.com criminal. Support for Criminal comes from Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who switch to Progressive save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. There's a Soviet short film from 1975 called Hedgehog in the Fog. It's only 10 minutes long. It's been called the best animated film of all time. По вечерам ежик ходил к медвежонку считать звезды. Они усаживались на бревнышке. Truly, actually, Russian animation is a kind of an art form. The cartoons there, they are made without the restrictions that your typical American cartoons are. Like, they don't have to be 26 minutes long, you know, for space for commercials. They don't have to have this continuation of a story once the episode is over. Back in the Soviet Russia, the cartoons were made purely as a way to sort of entertain the kids, of course, but also as a kind of as a kind of art. They were only as long as they needed to be. They only told the story the way it ought to be told without anything else. And I think people who have seen them, they would easily agree with my statements. It's really something to be seen and appreciated. In May of 1928, Mickey Mouse was introduced by Walt Disney. Within a few years, Disney animations were so popular that they were being shown around the world, including at a film festival in Moscow in 1933. Soviet viewers, including Joseph Stalin, fell in love. The slogan, Give us a Soviet Mickey Mouse, became popular. And three years later, in 1936, the animation studio Soyuz Moltfilm opened in Moscow. A version of it still exists today, and many of the films are admired for their sophistication and lack of violence. As one director put it, in our films, there's always been less aggression. We staked our all not on action, but on psychology, humor, and a dialogue with the viewer. It came out of the tradition of Russian folktales. Hedgehog in the Fog follows a worried-seeming hedgehog who gets lost in a thick fog. He's surprised by all of the animals he encounters. He rides a fish. Even by the end, when he's safe, it doesn't feel like a happy ending. Definitely not a Disney ending. In the final frames, the hedgehog is still anxious. It's slow 
and dreamlike and kind of scary. These films are brilliant and they're beautiful and they're very, they're varied. You know, I, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> My name is Joan Borston, but I'm also known as Joan Borston Vidov. Vidov is the name of my late husband, who was the Robert Redford of Russia and defected in 1985. Joan Borston met Oleg Vidov in Rome. She'd grown up in Los Angeles, but she'd gone to Rome to work as a journalist. Joan had arranged to stay temporarily with an American actor named Richard Harrison and his wife. When Joan arrived to his apartment, Oleg Vidov was already staying there. She knew that he was an actor, but she remembers that the first time they met, he had such a terrible sunburn, she didn't understand how he could be famous. A few days later, when his sunburn faded, she realized how handsome he was. Joan says she wasn't looking for romance, but Oleg followed her around. He wanted to tell her his life story, even though he didn't really speak English. When we asked how they fell in love, Joan said... It just kind of happened. He convinced her to move back to Los Angeles, where they got married. Oleg found work in Hollywood. There were headlines everywhere. He was the first major Soviet actor ever to defect. However, Hollywood was still in the Cold War era, and most of the parts that were written were mean KGB officers, and my husband was a very good-looking leading man. So the first role he did was in Arnold Schwarzenegger's um, Red Heat. Uh, And then he did Wild Orchid with Mickey Rourke. Later on, he did 13 Days with Kevin Costner. But there weren't a lot of parts for actors who looked like Oleg and had a Russian accent. After the Soviet Union dissolved and Gorbachev stepped down in 1991, Oleg Vidov was worried about what would happen to the animations. He said, Soviet cartoons had always been my weakness. And now they were in danger of complete disappearance. Joan says he immediately got on a plane to Moscow and approached the heads of the animation studio. My husband had grown up on this beautiful, kind Soviet animation, and now he wanted to share it with the world. So five months later, in May of 1992, he sent me to Moscow by myself. I didn't speak Russian. I had never been to Russia to negotiate a contract in a country that you know, they hadn't even woken up from the Soviet era. Joan says that working with a translator, she negotiated the rights to distribute a number of films outside the former Soviet Union. According to the BBC, they paid $500,000 for a 30-year contract. They found that some of the films were very badly damaged and had been taped back together with scotch tape. The BBC reported that in some cases, the films were in such bad shape that they cost $10,000 per frame to restore. Getting the rights wasn't the problem. The problem was that the Soviet Union put very little effort into um, keeping these films that were produced beginning in 1936 in good condition. So what we didn't know when we signed the contract was that we would have to digitally restore all the films. We would have to revoice them, and we did it with famous American actors. And uh, we would have to do new music in some cases because the Russian language and the music was married together. Joan says it was a monumental task. 
Not to mention that a lot of the films were in violation of all kinds of copyright laws, which Joan and Oleg had to muddle through. The Soviet studio had used music and stories from all over the world without permission. For instance, they'd used the love theme from The Godfather in a 1978 animation about a space alien. But Oleg's bet that people would love them was paying off. The movies were picked up by HBO, Bravo, and PBS. Joan says these English-language dubbed versions were one aspect of the arrangement with the studio in Moscow. But there was another part to the deal. Joan and Oleg would also clean up the Russian-language versions of the films. Joan says they invited one of the original guys from the Soviet animation house to come help with restorations. And then they distributed them and sent a cut of the profits back to the studio in Moscow. They released a themed collection called Animated Soviet Propaganda. Joan says it was a huge hit. In one of the cartoons called The Millionaire, an American woman leaves a million dollars to her bulldog. The dog lives on Fifth Avenue, eats steaks, and eventually is elected to the Senate. The final scene shows the dog in a tuxedo, standing on a pile of bags of money. The narrator says, now that's what crooked money does. Joan says that right from the start, everything was more expensive and more complicated than they'd expected. The Russian government even tried to undermine the legitimacy of the deal. Joan and Oleg pushed back, and a U.S. federal court affirmed their right to distribute the films. And then, in December 2005, the shops who normally stocked the Russian-language films suddenly stopped ordering as much as they were before. Some stopped ordering altogether. It didn't seem likely that customers had suddenly lost interest. So Joan decided to go look around. She visited a store in Studio City and claimed she was shopping for cartoons for her adopted Russian grandchild. That wasn't a complete lie. Joan really was a grandmother. And on the shelves, she saw animations that she'd personally negotiated for in Moscow. But they didn't look like the DVDs she and Oleg were producing. The cases were different. The covers seemed to be photocopied. And the films were priced at $10, about half what hers sold for. When you found out that this was happening, did you go to the police, to the authorities? No, because we'd already learned that we weren't Paramount Studio, we weren't Columbia. They weren't going to do anything for us. It was just a small business, which is why I had to take things into my own hands. She asked a Russian friend to drive around and buy all the animation DVDs she saw. The friend agreed, and then told Joan that one shopkeeper had invited her to return in a few weeks because they were expecting a lot of new inventory. Joan decided she needed to find out who was behind this. So um, I started to search for the, the, the big video pirate who was selling to all of the little stores in Los Angeles who didn't want to buy from us because our, what we were selling them was more expensive, of course, than what he was selling them. So what did you decide to do? <laughs> um, I decided to put together a team. A team of Russians. Some were actors. She wrote backstories for each of them. She asked one actress to play a woman named Natalia, 
Natalia's backstory was that she and her husband were opening a Russian video store in Palo Alto. Natalia was described as a, quote, unscrupulous, hard-edged businesswoman looking for bootleg tapes at the cheapest possible price. I wrote a script, and I I was on a mission. (laughs) I I was on a mission to find out who he was. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. I'm a person who, over my life, I have a history of um, taking situations I'm faced with into my own hands uh, and taking the initiative to get things done, and this was one of those times. And at that point, I hired Jake Schmidt, who used to be a CIA guy in, in Eastern Europe and now had a business in Los Angeles called Spy for Hire. Um, it, to be honest, it sounded like it was just a small deal. Jake Schmidt. I was sort of dismissive, I think, in my mind, that this was a serious problem. And I said, well, what do you want to do from here? Where, where do you want to go? And she explained that she wanted to start a full-blown undercover operation with a buyer, someone posing as a buyer, to try and make large-scale purchases. It's like, okay, great, I could walk into this DVD store and buy a counterfeit copy or four counterfeit copies of different films. But she wanted to send somebody in to talk to the owners to say, hey, I'd like to buy 200 copies. Where do you get your product from? So her plan was sound. I mean, that is the right way to do it. Jake Schmidt says Joan asked him to follow a Russian actress around and take pictures as the woman made conversation with shop owners. Joan gave them a list of stores. Quite a list. As I recall, there were 25 or 30 different stores on the list. I kind of winced, but I think she was smart enough to know what she wanted. And so we went around and hit at least a dozen of the stores. And by then, the girl that was walking in and documenting what the owners were saying kept hearing the same name, which was a guy we only had the first name, was Dimitri. Thanks to 1Password for their support. It can be annoying to create so many new, unique passwords with arbitrary numbers, symbols, and letters every time we need one. And then once we've created one that works, we have to try to keep track of it and not reuse it anywhere else. And not choose anything that's easy to guess or remember. 1Password can take care of all of that for you. 1Password generates as many strong, unique passwords as you need and securely stores them in an encrypted vault that only you have access to. It uses industry-leading security to bring private, secure, and user-friendly password management to everyone. With 1Password, you just need to remember one strong account password that protects everything else. It's a great way to keep things organized and private, so you'll no longer need to keep tabs on a bunch of long, convoluted passwords or reuse the same one ever again. Join the millions of users and over 100,000 businesses who trust 1Password's award-winning password manager. Right now, our listeners get a free two-week trial for you and your family at onepasswordcom criminal. That's the number one, password.com slash criminal for two free weeks. onepasswordcom slash criminal. Support for Criminal comes from Quince. It's spring, and you might be in the mood to get rid of some clutter. 
A good place as any to start is your wardrobe. Having just a few high-quality, timeless pieces of clothing feels a lot better than a closet full of stuff you're not that thrilled about. You can get some of those well-made essentials from Quince. Quince is a brand that offers luxury clothing essentials at reasonable prices. They have a wide variety of items, like 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters, organic cotton sweaters, washable silk tops, and 14-karat gold jewelry. All of Quince's stuff is affordable. In fact, they're priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They're able to do that because they partner directly with top factories. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com criminal for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash criminal to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash criminal. Now that Joan Borston had a name, just a first name, Dimitri, she sent in the actress playing Natalia to try and get closer to Dimitri. Natalia, using her story that she and her husband were opening a shop of their own in Palo Alto and seeking cheap DVDs, was able to get a phone number for Dimitri. Joan directed her to call and persuade him that she and her husband were serious and ready to buy. Now it was time for the next phase of Joan's plan. Natalia's husband, or the man pretending to be Natalia's husband, stepped in. Uh, his name was Andre, and he did a really good job. Well, my name is Andre. I'm a software engineer by training, located uh, in uh, Southern California, Los Angeles. Why did she pick you? I just happened to speak Russian. She just needed somebody to be able to converse with them uh, in Russian. That's all. Joan knew Andrei Violentev because he'd gone to school with her stepson, Sergei. And even though Andrei wasn't an actor, he agreed. What was your first impression of Joan? Oh, she's a... Uh, very sharp lady. In my opinion, she could have been a senator if she wanted to, but she's very smart and she's very driven. Like if, if she sets her goals on doing something, she, she can get it done. Andre called Dimitri and read him a list of titles he said he wanted to buy. He says Dimitri told him to go to a Russian store in Reseda on April 30th, 2006, to buy Russian books and souvenirs and to call him immediately after he left the store. Joan told Andre to go ahead and do it, and to spend $50. At 1.30 on April 30th, Dimitri called wanting to know why Andre hadn't gone to the store yet. Andre said he'd be there in an hour. At the time, I just thought this was just a, a little favor that I'm uh, doing for John and Oleg. And uh, I didn't think much of it. It was just uh, to help them uh, do the right thing. And frankly, I didn't even think of much of what the consequences of it are going to be and what are going to be the actual implications of uh, actually <laughs> having it done. But um, being pretty young at the time, I thought, oh, why not, right? What's the worst that could happen? When he got there... He told the store owner that Dimitri sent him. They talked. And Andre told the story Joan had written out for him, that he was currently renting a shelf in an existing store in Palo Alto. The shopkeeper asked how much he was paying per square foot for the shelf. Andre had no idea what to say. 
He told the man he was paying $30 per square foot. Um, <laughs> that number I, I came up with on the fly only because just a few days ago, I happened to talk to, with my cousin who was looking for some office space, and he mentioned something about $20 per square foot. And so then I figured, well, okay, Palo Alto is a more expensive area, and so just a shell search probably more than that. So I just cooked up $30 per square foot <laughs> off the bat. But really, if it wasn't for that, I remember thinking that, well, how else would you come up with a number like that? You'd have to think about, okay, what is the square footage of your apartment? How much you're actually paying for it? Then, you know, divide one number by the other and then adjust for it being a business and so on and so forth. You could never say it the right number, <laughs> you know, in, in mid-flight. And I felt that, wow, you know, I almost got cut on that one. If it wasn't for my cousin's <laughs> tip, this would have been ugly. The man didn't say anything. They continued talking, and Andre bought 12 sets of nesting dolls. He left the store and called Dimitri. I was definitely a little nervous, and uh, part of it is because I've never done anything like this before, so I just had to call in and uh, be in character and uh, hope that he wouldn't probe me too much about Natalia, which was my pretend wife. So my initial instinct was essentially try to be, you know, friendly with the guy, because after all, we're trying to do business here and I'm trying to get him to uh, buy into this whole scheme. But uh, he was getting more and more nervous. And I, I remember at some point feeling that this isn't going well. Uh, he's really looking for something to cut the conversation short and drop this whole thing. And he just kept asking me these probing questions that were making me more nervous. And I could tell that he was getting more and more nervous himself. And finally, I kind of, I kind of realized that I need to get mad at this guy. That if I really was doing this for real, this is the point where I need to get mad at him. And uh, mind you, not having had any sort of acting classes uh, or any sort of experience doing this sort of thing, I was a little... I was questioning myself for a moment, can I actually do this or not? But, you know, I took a breath and cursed him out in Russian the best I could remember. <laughs> I don't remember exactly what I told him, but it was something in the order of, uh, you know, having had enough, my leash being jerked around and that, uh, you know, are we going to do this or not? You know, let's stop wasting my time. And I remember that as soon as I said that, it immediately sold it to him. Like he, that he immediately changed his tone of conversation, and uh, he he totally bought it. And the next thing I know, he's uh, telling me when to meet him, at what time, and that's how things. And that's where it took off from there, essentially. Did you immediately call Joan and say, Joan, it worked. I'm actually going to meet him. Yeah, exactly. As soon as I hung up. On the phone, I called Jonah Cole, and uh, she was, uh, yeah, she was pretty excited that this is working. And her husband Oleg was also on the phone. He kind of congratulated me, and um, I, I felt like he would be proud of me for being able to pull this off. And especially the whole getting mad at Dmitri was that was the key to getting it done. At the beginning of this, did you tell your friends ever what you were planning on doing? Did you let anyone know what you were doing? 
Yes, my mom was a little nervous about it. And uh, to this day, I'm somewhat uh, perplexed by the duality of the situation of both being, you know, kind of fun to do, but at the same time, you know, a very serious and possibly even dangerous business. You know, from my perspective, it was, it was kind of fun. I could just pretend to be that I'm somebody else uh, and I'm doing a favor to somebody. And it's just like in the movies, right? You can pretend <laughs> you're, you're being undercover here. It was both exciting and scary at the same time. I wish that someone would ask me to do something like this. I would jump at this chance. This sounds like a fun thing to do. Right, right. It's fun until you realize that, well, you know, their people's lives are kind of uh, at play here. It may be fun for me, but it's certainly not fun for uh, the pirates once they get caught. And even for, for John, right? And while the crime itself is not violent, it's just pirating DVDs, right? All they do is copy DVDs. Who's to, to say that they might not turn violent at some point towards you? On Sunday, April 30th, 2006, Dimitri told Andre to meet him at the intersection of Highland and Sunset at 5 p.m. As Andre approached, Dimitri called and told him to turn into the parking lot of a Carl's Jr. As I imagine every self-respecting DVD uh, dealer would do, he showed up in this black SUV, and I pulled in my car, and he came out with his, uh, uh, what I presume to be was his wife. And after a quick exchange of hellos, he opened up the hatch, and there was this big box of DVDs in there. He told me that there are, uh, if I remember, there were 400 DVDs in there. We did a quick count. I even complained a little that, you know, why is it that the DVDs are not even shrink-wrapped? To which he replied that, you know, if I'm going to be selling DVDs, I might as well just invest some money and buy a shrink-wrapping machine because customers take the shrink-wrapping off all the time, so I'm going to be doing this anyway. And so then after a bit of haggle, we essentially settled on the price. I paid them in cash, who shook hands, and uh, off I was with the whole box worth of pirated DVDs. But then, Dimitri called Andre again. He had more DVDs to sell. Andre didn't know what to say, so he called Joan, and she told him to meet up with Dimitri again and make the buy. This time, they met at Dimitri's office on La Brea. There are photos of Dimitri and Andre walking out of the building. Andre is holding a paper bag, and you can see them standing there, chatting for a while. Joan was there, too, watching the whole thing from the back of private detective Jake Schmidt's surveillance van. The buy went down, her contact left, Dimitri went inside for a minute, and then I saw him exiting the small parking lot in his, I believe it was a black BMW. And the only way I was going to find out who he was was to get the plate and to tail him. So I burned out and didn't stop to check if Joan had been buckled in in the back of the van. And I heard a thump, thump groan and my heart sank. And I remember yelling through the curtains in the back of the van, Joan, are you okay? 
She grunted a little bit, and she goes, I'm good, I'm good. Get him, Jake, get him. Had you ever been on a stakeout before? No. <laughs> and and I assume <laughs> Absolutely never, not. you've never chased another car before? No. At any point... But I kept saying to Jake, keep going, don't lose him, don't lose him. <laughs> and I'm sure we were just lucky there wasn't a policeman around, because I know he went through a couple of red lights. I continued to tail the guy through Hollywood to an apartment building on Doheny, which is a main thoroughfare that separates West Hollywood from Beverly Hills. And I got the plate. I immediately ran the plate, and of course I started looking for everything, uh, any relatives, contacts, etc. and there was just nothing. It was like he was a solo institution. Couldn't trace him to any businesses, any business licenses. He was just an anomaly, as it were. He was just an average-looking guy. Not too tall, not too short, just average build. You know, you're, you're Joe next door. You would never guess that there was anything going on suspicious with him. Jake Schmidt parked outside of Dimitri's apartment for several days. And if Dimitri went anywhere, Jake followed. And he only did one thing of significance, which was on about the third day, uh, I tailed him down towards Los Angeles International Airport, LAX. And it seemed unusual. It's, it's a bit of a jaunt from Hollywood. Um, and there's an old saying in LA, when you move here, don't make friends, because sooner or later, somebody's going to ask you to take him to the airport. So nobody likes driving to LAX, and, but that's where we were headed. And I thought it seemed unusual. Anyway, I tailed him to a hotel, and I watched him enter the hotel on foot. Uh, he was inside for about 10 minutes. He came out carrying two large plastic bags, like grocery bags, uh, with long cylindrical shapes in them. They looked like stacks of DVDs. So a few days later, we headed back to the same hotel. This time I got in a better position, I waited, got very close to the front door. Uh, Dimitri parked and sat in his car. And as he was waiting, a service van pulled up, a large uh, shuttle bus uh, vehicle from the airport. And it was carrying an entire flight crew from an Aeroflot flight, the Russian airline. And I watched all of them get off uh, the bus and uh, they all went into the hotel. About 10 minutes later, the man I had earlier recognized as probably the captain or navigator from that flight crew came out dressed in civilian clothing. And he was carrying several large grocery bags with cylindrical shapes in them. He stood out in front of the hotel. Dimitri came up. They shook hands. They talked. Uh, no money was exchanged at that point from Dimitri, but the what I believe was the pilot handed Dimitri several large bags, uh, these bags with cylindrical shapes. And I got video and photographs. It was absolutely obvious that this flight crew had smuggled or brought in, uh, otherwise, this product. to Progressive for their support. While you're listening to the show, maybe you're also doing something else. 
driving, dishes, folding laundry. I listen when I go on walks. If you're not currently driving a car, you could also be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. Save money right now from your phone. Drivers who switch to Progressive save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner, and more. Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year, so you're protected no matter what. You can get a quote for your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over the 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Joan, with her attorney, contacted the U.S. Marshal Service to go search Dmitri's facility. Jake Schmidt says everyone met beforehand at a Russian restaurant across the street. The group included two court-appointed Russian interpreters and the head of the U.S. Marshal's task force. Five U.S. Marshals knocked on the door at Dmitri's, where Joan says they found hundreds of counterfeit DVDs of Russian animated films. She says they were overwhelmed. It was crazy. Her attorney came out and said, we found lots of product. He's not being difficult. He's claiming he doesn't know that he was doing something illegal. He was given a chance to cooperate. And from there on, it was a matter of just the legal proceedings. So we went to court a couple of times. Uh, I didn't actually have to testify in person, but I did submit uh, my uh, affidavit and my declaration. And that's how it went. Next thing I know, Joan called me and said, hey, there's an article coming out in the L.A. Times about this story. And um, it was nice, um, except for the way they described me. The reporter described Jake Schmidt as a, quote, stocky, former U.S. Army intelligence analyst. I would have preferred extremely handsome former section (laughs) chief for the CIA, but, you know, they they decided to uh, call me a former intelligence analyst who was stocky. Anyway, it was a good article. It was a good story. Um, and that was it. Now, I tend to get long-winded. The real hero of this story is Joan. Joan is the is probably the most tenacious, intelligent, driven client I've had in 20 years. And I've had Mel Gibson as a client. I've had Halle Berry as a client. I've had billionaires as clients. None of them compare to Joan, not even close. You do not want her after you, ever, because uh, she won't stop. You will turn around and her teeth will be in your butt. At any point, where did you think to yourself, I've gotten myself in too far? This is, I am, uh, I am sinking here. My, my head's underwater. No, I knew that we could solve this. It just was going to take time and 
some creative thinking in order to be able to find out who it was that behind closed doors was running this whole operation and ruining the market. And he, you know, he ran a very kind of slick operation. Joan had filed an $11 million copyright infringement lawsuit against Dimitri and eight of the stores that bought counterfeit DVDs from him. Dimitri offered her a financial settlement, and she accepted, but she's never disclosed the specifics. She says her number one priority was to just get him to stop, and that as far as she knows, he did. She told us she hasn't seen or heard from him since. Was this expensive, this whole sting operation hiring actors? I mean, did, did this put you out a lot of money? <laughs> um, you know, what, what my, when my husband decided that we were going to buy the international rights to about 50 hours of this Russian animation library, I thought he was nuts. <laughs> and, um, and when he first came back with it, and, you know, this, he, he was sure that Disney wanted to buy it right away. Disney didn't want to buy it. Nobody wanted to buy it. And uh, the costs were tremendous. I mean, it was horrible. And then we had all of these legal costs as well because of piracy, not just in the United States, but all around the world. But in the end, one of the oligarchs, the very, very wealthy, wealthy Russians, came and bought the rights back. He says he took them back to Russia, which is fine. And so he paid us a lot of money, and we were out of the business. Many people have credited Joan and Oleg Vidov with helping to popularize Russian animation all around the world. Oleg died in 2017. Obituaries made liberal mention of his good looks and his nickname, the Soviet Robert Redford. Andrei Violentev told us that these days... He enjoys showing the old Soviet animations he grew up watching to his own children, especially, he says, Hedgehog in the Fog. But really, there are dozens and dozens that are just absolutely wonderful and magical to watch. I definitely would recommend anyone who's never seen them before. Joan Borston says her granddaughter watches them all the time, but on YouTube. Criminal is created by Lauren Spohr and me. Nadia Wilson is our senior producer. Susanna Robertson is our producer. Audio mix by Rob Byers. Julian Alexander makes original illustrations for each episode of Criminal. You can see them at thisiscriminal.com or on Facebook and Twitter at Criminal Show. And you can learn more about Joan Borston's late husband, the Soviet Robert Redford, in her new documentary based on his autobiography, it's called The Oleg Vidov Story. Criminal is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. We're a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a collection of the best podcasts around. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. Radiotopia. Thanks to Progressive for their support. 
Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who switch to Progressive save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations.